0: Okay, that should be right. Alright, recording again. Um, That neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, turn to Romans chapter 12, verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. You can skip all of chapters 9 through 11 and seemingly not miss a beat. Because you have this extraordinary pinnacle of Paul's exposition of the glory of God and what he has done for us in chapter 8. Then chapter 12 kind of goes into now. Now this is what you need to do. This is how you live it. What we just talked about which is so glorious. But nine through eleven seems completely out of place it's like I don't know an addendum stuck in the middle of the story um, or you know the some discursus that has no bearing it looks that way on the surface, but in actuality it is a re um, assertion of the foundational material that we've seen in chapters one through eight. Make sure you do not ever let a teacher tell you that nine to 11 have no place in Romans because it's not true. It's actually critical to the how we then live in 12 to 16. If you don't understand nine through 11, one through eight is a wonderful, glorious, beautiful thing. But don't stop your study there. Now, in chapters 9 through 11, we have themes of election, sovereignty of God, predestination, and explores for us why Christians have been so supportive of Israel. Has that ever crossed your mind? Why that's considered a thing in the Christian church? I mean, they're Jews, right? They're not Christians. So why are we supportive of the Jews? And we support it biblically. There's reasons for that and that's found here. Now, James Montgomery Boyce in his commentary on this section He says, what a difference it would make if our churches could recapture the apostles' God-centered and God-directed orientation. But of course, it's not likely to happen. Not in the direction we're going. Instead of thinking about God more and coming to know him better, today's Christians spend most of their time thinking about themselves and are therefore bogged down in miserable self-contemplation and analysis instead of being set free to love and serve God with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength. This sad, prevailing attitude has, has its bearing on the study of Romans 9-11. to Or perhaps, I should say, to the neglect of the study of these chapters. I do not think it's too much to say that few Christians study them at all, and few preachers preach on them at all. Why? Because these chapters are difficult. But most of all, because they're focused on the glory and the ways of God more than any other comparable section of the Bible, and because they pull us along in directions we find uncomfortable to travel. These themes in these chapters will stretch our minds. And mind-stretching, like any other kind of rigorous exercise, is painful. But it's good for us. And it's necessary for us, if we we're to be the strong Christian, to be strong Christians equipped by God to challenge the errors and evils of our age with a truly robust Christianity. And you go, boy! I didn't get that when I looked at Romans nine through eleven. Well, I don't want you to raise your hands because this is not a a, a class to shame anybody. But how many of us? Just think to yourself, have read Romans 9 to 11 in the last five years. I mean, actually read it rather than skipping over it to the good stuff in chapter 12 or the good stuff in chapter 8. I could raise my hand. Now, that's a nice confession from your teacher. But it's not a typical passage that you're going to read devotionally because it's hard to figure out. And as you read it, you're kind of going, okay, why am I supposed to care? These chapters are considered controversial and even divisive. I have a book here called Three Views of Israel and the Church, Perspectives on Romans 9 through 11. So here we have three conservative, evangelical Christian scholars who all approach this passage simultaneously and present three completely divergent opinions. (laughs) I opened this thing up and I went, oh my goodness, I start reading the exegesis where they're digging into the Greek. And then I turn to the next scholar who's digging into the same Greek and to the next scholar who's digging into the same Greek using the same tools and come away with three different interpretations of the same text. How is that possible? Shouldn't it just be absolutely clear? Aren't you excited now? Uh, And don't expect me to have the answer. Uh, These guys are really smart. In fact, the challenge of these three views books is you read the first guy and you go, oh, yeah, that makes sense that's really brilliant. And then you see the critique from the other two. and You go, oh yeah, that first guy was a nut. And then you read the second guy and you go, oh, he's brilliant. And then you read the critique of him and you go, oh, he was an idiot. And then you come to the third one. And then you have the editor who comes along in the end and goes, hey, wasn't this fun? Now granted, the issues here in these kinds of things don't necessarily affect your Faith in Jesus Christ. They affect an understanding of Scripture and shows the diversity within the confines of the church. None of these is going to tear, shouldn't, I shouldn't say none will, none should tear a church apart. But you can find those that get so wrapped up in one of these issues that it becomes divisive. For example, I almost, I actually wrote in my notes, read the back cover copy. I'd rather not. Uh, trying to explain some of the issues. I'll just kind of summarize them here. Questions like, how does the church relate to Israel today? Like I said in the earlier, it's a Jewish nation. It's not a Christian nation. It's not even close to being a Christian nation. And yet, even this past week, didn't we have some a leader of the Israel uh, group visit the Dome of the Rock which is supposed to be Muslim territory and the United States has condemned that act whoa suddenly you have a current administration that's not supporting Israel's sovereignty now is that a biblical issue Yes. Is it a political one? Absolutely. Is it a religious one? Yes. Um, Is the nation of Israel a type, as in typology, or a picture of something else? Is the church, today's church, the new Israel? Is Jesus the true Israel? These are all issues wrapped up in chapters 9 to 11, believe it or not. So there's lots of ways to approach 9 to 11 in this class. We can go into detail. Like James Montgomery Boyce, 57 sermons on chapters 9 to 11. You wanna do it that way? (laughs) We'd be here for the next year and a half on three chapters, imagine his poor church. But that poor church is also much better for it. But he breaks down every single section over and over again and showing the glory of God in that. I think that might be a little bit too much. We could breeze over it. Like I found one book on Romans that has 300 words of commentary per Chapter. 300 words on chapter 9, 300 words on chapter 10, 300 words on chapter 11. Pretty much three pages. That's it. I just looked at it and went, well, yeah, that is kind of what it is. I could have read that for myself. That's not exposition. Instead, what I'm going to try to do is to first give an overview of the big picture of the three, which I've already begun doing here. Then today we will look at verses 1 through 5. And then we'll just kind of wing it from there. We'll try to do the balance of chapter 9 next week. It may, may or may not be possible, depending on the direction that the study goes. But we'll see. So I have to ask the question in our overview here, why, other than what I've related, why is 9 to 11 often avoided? I actually went back into the notes that I had when I taught the Camelback Bible high schoolers, Romans, 30 years ago. and. I couldn't find my notes on chapter nine, which made me wonder either I skipped it <laughs> or I just lost the notes. But I found my notes on chapter 10 and my t- notes on chapter 11. I thought, boy, these are really simplistic. And I thought, oh yeah, I was dealing with high schoolers. And yet at the same time, I'm reading and going, well, yeah, that's what it says, but how do we expand on it so that our class can really <laughs> wrestle with the material? But one of the big questions of any Large passage like this is, what is its relevance? What's the point? Why study this? I mean, Okay, yeah, we know it's the Bible. We're supposed to study the Bible, but how do I make an application? I mean, it's not like we have a messianic portion of our congregation. It's not like we have a group of Jewish Christians in our, in our congregation like the Romans did remember it was a mix of Jews and Gentiles so we don't necessarily deal with some of those national issues we also tend to avoid controversies like predestination because it's so hard to grasp in its in its totality and I can tell you Some of the studies that I've read who are very much on a reformed or Calvinistic perspective, they are unyielding in how they approach chapter 9 in particular. It's wow. And at the same time, you kind of go, well, they make a good point. Um, Or issues like Christian Zionism, where you have certain elements within the Christian church that get very engaged in the state of Israel because Paul says in Romans chapter 11 verse 26, all Israel will be saved. Which is a prophecy if you look at it in that connection that all the Jews will have an option, an opportunity to be saved. And by the way, that verse is the key to this controversy of this particular book. So you have one saying that there will be a future mass conversion, one says that there won't be, and another one says there will be neither. That's the three perspectives. So why is it relevant? Oh, sorry, number three is there's too many Old Testament quotations. In Romans 9 through 11, every third verse on average is a quote from the Old Testament or a reference to the Old Testament. In fact, of all the uses of the Old Testament in all of Paul's letters, from Romans all the way to Timothy, Titus I should say, Philemon. Let's go to Philemon, from Romans to Philemon. By the way, I like to always throw this out at everybody. Why is the letters Why are the letters of Paul in the order that they're in? It's certainly not chronological, which we've discovered. It's a length. Romans is the the largest. Phileum is the shortest. That's how it's organized. It has nothing to do with anything else. It's just for some reason that's how they fit in the scrolls. Anyway, they should have had e-books back then. <laughs> Um, too many old testament quotations so you think of all the old testament quotations of Paul in all of his letters one third of all of his quotations are found in chapters 9 to 11. so if you don't understand the old testament you're not going to understand romans 9 to 11. but when it's a reference to a verse in Micah You're going to, what is that? So suddenly you have to go back and unpack the, the context so you can understand what Paul is quoting and why it's important. That slows the whole process down and makes it a little bit less easy on a surface reading to understand the allusions, unless you already know your Old Testament, like the back of your hand. Now I'm going to provide a chart next week of all these old testament quotations so you can kind of see them at once and have it as a reference for your future study so the relevance while these chapters i'm just read you what i wrote down while these chapters address the jew of the romans or rome they echo today's people who profess belief but are more religious than they are Christ followers. So if you think about it, you have a Jewish believer in a church with Gentiles who may have a different perspective and may not truly grasp or accept what Paul has been teaching about Jesus. But they're holy. They're good people. And they attend church all the time. So they've got to be good. they got to be Christians. The Jew of the Rome can be found in Romans chapter 2, verses 17 to 20, which reads, You call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed in the law. Paul acknowledges the Jewish people in the congregation as strong believers who have a relationship to God. Chapter 3, verse 2 says, Much in every way, to begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God, meaning they have the Bible, they understand it, they know its importance. They profess a relationship with God when they say, you call yourself a, a Jew and boast in God. They know God's moral standards. You know his will and approve what is excellent. You instruct the foolish. You are a teacher of children, having the law and embodiment of knowledge and truth, which is verse 20 of chapter 2. And they are willing to tell others right from wrong based on those standards. These are good, faithful people. So think of someone who has grown up in the church. They have Christian parents, maybe. Maybe they've been baptized. Maybe they even go to a famous church and rub shoulders with famous Christians. And they listen to podcasts and they're they're online and they're, they're absorbing all this stuff. But are they, and then I put in parentheses, are we faithful Pharisees? Who have a certain law that we follow, but we have yet to surrender it all to Jesus. That's what makes this passage relevant. If you want to just say, oh, that's talking about the Jews and forget it, well, you're not looking at the larger picture that Paul in through the Holy Spirit and the beauty of the scriptures is that it speaks to every generation. And speaks to us. As I wrote, that is relevant. So it's controversial. Okay. Romans nine to eleven is too hard to understand. Romans nine to eleven is too theological. Romans nine to eleven is not inspirational enough. Yes, yes, and yes. And that's okay. It reminded me. I know, sometimes illustrations break down, but it reminded me when I was first learning how to swim and uh, taking swim lessons, this is up in Alaska, We there was a heated swimming pool within walking distance of our house. So we would bundle up in the weather, walk to this and then this sauna, you know, <laughs> and I'm you know, trying to learn, <coughs> you know, you hold onto the side and paddle your feet and you do all that stuff. And I was by myself, my parents were not with me. I don't remember how old I was. Maybe eight, maybe nine. And because I remember walking there and walking home being really cold after coming out with being wet, you know, the hair actually crusted in the ice. So anyway, but then they took us to the deep end of the pool. And the idea was to swim Along the side, so the pool, the side of the pool is here, but the instructor says you have to be far enough away that you can't grab the side. And so you, you know, kind of let yourself in and you're supposed to swim across the short end of the pool, but it's 10 feet deep. And we're supposed to do it on our back because we were learning the backstroke. So we're kind of doing this. And I panicked. I froze and I began to sink and I remember this feeling of absolute terror that I can't grab the side, I can't move and I'm panicking and suddenly I felt this in the middle of my chest and it was the swimming instructor with his leg. He jammed his foot into my chest which caused me to do this and grab a hold. And he lifted me out with one leg and brought me to the side, and I was fine. He goes, He's looking at me, going, You okay? You okay? I look back on that. I'm going, Now, if I were a parent, I'm going, What's he doing kicking my son? Anyway, he saved me to think of today's sermon. He rescued me from my own terror of the depth. Second time, I mean, I got myself calmed down, and he said, we're gonna do this again. I'm like, <gasps> I come back over and I sleep, and I'm trembling. I was so much better the second time because I knew there was someone who could rescue me at any moment. I was still trembling. It took me a long time to get across the pool. And he goes, oh, that was pretty good. Let's do it again. And I come back around third time I didn't even think about the fact that I could drown I was no longer afraid when you approach Romans 9 to 11 it's like taking swimming lessons the first time you read it you're going holy smoke I don't understand why okay I can read it on a surface level but I don't I cannot plumb the depths it's too terrifying or it's too difficult The second time you go through it, a little bit easier. third time you go through it, so you see, that's our approach here. If this is your first time, just let the eyes glaze over a little bit. Just try to absorb, but come back to your notes. Come listen to the lectures again. Study it again, maybe six months from now, maybe a year from now. It is amazing. I also would recommend that sometime this week you read chapters 9 to 11, just so that you have a context. And if you want to use your ESV from the church, uh, church's Bible that we use, sure. But, you know, if this is your first time, read the Living Bible or the Message. Read a paraphrase. Knowing full well that these paraphrases interpret. So they're making theological interpretation as you're reading it. But it can create some, oh... Now I understand. I will never forget reading a passage in Job when I was in college out of the Living Bible and I thought, I never knew the Bible said that. That's just amazing. And so I went to my regular translation and the Bible didn't say that. (laughs) It was the the paraphraser's interpretation that was a wonderful statement. It was implicit, but it was not explicit in the scripture. So always be careful. Also, remember the historical context. You have Paul, who has yet to visit the Roman church, is writing to strangers, but knowing the makeup of the church, probably through uh, Priscilla and Aquila, who were from there originally, knowing that there were Jews and Gentiles, both in that church, and Paul wanted them to get along. He wanted harmony, in chapter three, verse twenty-seven of Romans, it reads, He's he's admonishing the Jews. What becomes of our boasting? It should be include, excluded by what kind of law? A law of works, but no, a law of faith. He's saying, Look, look, guys, you've got some special things, but don't lord it over the Gentiles. Why not we be doing that? But over in chapter 11, verse 13, Paul addresses the Gentiles. And he says, now I'm speaking to you Gentiles. inasmuch as I'm an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. And then he says, in verse 18, don't be arrogant toward the branches, meaning the Jews. If you are, remember it's not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. And then you'll say, branches are broken off, they might, gra- might be grafted in. Well, that's true, but they were broken off because of their unbelief, and you stand fast through faith. Do not be proud, but stand in awe. So he's, he's hitting both sides in this church. So you could almost see at one point in the early part, you know, as it's being read out loud, the Gentiles are going, <laughs> yeah, those Jews are so proud and arrogant. I mean, just Thank you, Paul, for being so insightful. <laughs> and then later on, Paul hits the Gentiles, and the Jews are going, "Yeah, we, yeah, those guys are kind of arrogant." They're... His point is, we're all arrogant. Cut it out. <laughs> Don't be arrogant. Nine to eleven is for both parties to understand God's plan. Other thing that's interesting, in nine to eleven is to focus on Jesus's role as the Messiah. This becomes very clear in one simple way. In Romans 1 through 8, Paul refers to Jesus as Jesus or Jesus Christ. In 9 to 11, he never refers to him as Jesus. He only refers to him as Christ, the Messiah. He's making a point of the fulfillment of God's promise to the people of Israel in Christ. But he doesn't use, he uses the title Christ. Because remember Christ is not Jesus' last name. (laughs) Christ is Messiah in Hebrew or um, uh, the Anointed One in Greek. That's what that means. Chapter 9, verse 5, it reads, Christ is God over all. Chapter 10, verse 4, it reads, Christ is the end of the law. In chapter 10, verse 17, it says, faith comes by hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. That idea of Jesus' role as Messiah is embedded in this particular section of Scripture. Now, for those of you who like outlines, I probably came across as many outlines as there are writers on the Book of Romans. Some of them are very detailed. They break it all apart into little, you know, 1A A1, AB1, C3 you know, E equals M C squared. I mean it was just wow. I found one, however, that is really simple and I think it's probably the best one for our purposes. Chapter nine <coughs> this is about you. God's chosen people. Chapter ten God's continuing plan in chapter 11 is God's continuing promise if we keep this in mind as we study this these sections of Scripture it kind of all becomes clear because the window is very, it's simple. First he defines who his people are, then he talks about his plan, and he talks about his promise. Okay, now we have a handout, Carl. Oh, <laughs> sorry, I just did to get the sleep on my head. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so now we are going to take a look at verses one through five. Short and sweet. First, we're going to read it all together. So I'm going to wait till the, uh, the handout is with everyone so we have all the same words in front of us. I think everybody's got one. Okay. Let's read the passage together out loud, starting with verse 1. I am speaking the truth in Christ, I'm not lying my conscience bears me witness to the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart for I wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers my kinsmen according to the flesh they are Israelites And to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Now you'll notice the arrangement of this passage does not follow what you see in your regular Bible. I gave credit to the bottom uh, for a new product called the Readable Bible, where this fellow has gone in and he rearranges text in this kind of paragraph and subparagraph form. And in many ways, it becomes easier for us modern readers when you read something that's just a block of text your eyes glaze over or they start to bleed one or the other <laughs> uh, and it's like what am I reading this actually breaks it out a little bit I had to adapt it because he actually created a translation on top of it what you have here is the ESV but kind of rearranged in a uh, a little bit more visual way and I'm going to try to do some of that throughout um, our study just uh, where it, where it's appropriate but let's look at what Paul's saying. Now remember, he has just concluded with his extraordinary pinnacle of Romans chapter 8. The joy of the glory of God in the life of every believer. And his next statement is: I'm telling the truth, I ain't lying, guys. I have great sorrow and anguish. Wh- what? I mean, didn't you just talk about the most wonderful thing in the world, and now you're depressed? This is odd. But that you know, that's our mindset. That's how we think. It's not what Paul's thinking. First thing he says here, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. This is not the first time he's written something like this. He said almost the identical thing in 1 Timothy 2:7 which is uh, was written a few years later where he says I'm I'm telling the truth I'm not lying and in 2 Corinthians 12:6 and in 2 Corinthians 11:31 he basically says I'm telling the truth I'm not lying. In Galatians uh, chapter 1 verse 20 he uh, let me find it real quick here. He writes in what I'm writing to you before God I do not lie which means his enemies are claiming he's lying and he's countering their argument before he has even made his argument think about it that way it's like you stand before a judge I, I swear to tell the whole truth you know nothing but the truth so help me God you're saying I'm not a liar And then you give your testimony. Or you give your testimony and then you end it with, and I wasn't lying. Because people are saying, but he was lying. He didn't tell the truth. So you see, Paul is making the statement ahead of time. He's anticipating controversy. And so he asserts his knowledge of the truth before stating his case. But then it says here, my conscience bears me witness. The word conscience is a Latin word. Con-science, with knowledge. That's what con-science is. It's the blending of those two words. In the Greek, it's sun-aido, with knowledge. It's the same construct. It's an awareness of ourself. It's awareness of you know, what we believe, you know, we have the, uh, the cartoonish idea of the good angel and the bad angel standing on your shoulder, whispering in one ear or the other, and then they swap. And you get confused, you know, you don't know which ear to listen to. You never listen to the bad one. Um, however, in 1 Timothy 4.2, He wrote to Timothy, said, through the insincerity of liars, whose consciousnesses have been seared. He knows that just because you have a conscience, it not necessarily exhibits truth. Which is why he has the witness of the Holy Spirit in this verse. He says, this isn't just me talking. It's my conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. He is claiming and asserting that he is in God's will as he is going to present this. I think that's really important. Because you can meet someone who's sincere. I mean, really sincere. But they're sincerely wrong. But they believe it with all vim and vigor and they defend it to the death, especially on social media. <laughs> it's like, wow. You're li- yeah. <laughs> what did I see? Some of, the, some of the other day, I think it was a Babylon Bee article, um, which they're the most hilarious parody people out there. Um, uh, man dies uh, knowing that he spent his life appropriately commenting on YouTube videos. (laughs) Like anybody cares what you say in a comment section on YouTube. Um, (laughs) Like, wow. Paul is speaking the truth in Christ. And notice the Christ is used there the very first time, right off the bat. Mm -hmm. He doesn't say in Jesus, he says in Christ. And I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness. And what does it witness to? That I have great sorrow and unseeking ang- unceasing anguish in my heart. But he doesn't say what he's having sorrow or unseeking, unceasing anguish about, does he? Not even in the next verse and not even in the verse following. In other words, the first five verses, he doesn't really tell you why he's so upset. We get it later, and we understand by context, he is so concerned that his fellow Jews do not believe. One writer pointed to a lament of another great prophet who was very upset because the people did not believe. And it's from Jeremiah. Jeremiah 4, 19 to 22. My anguish, my anguish, I writhe in pain, Oh, the walls of my heart. My heart is beating wildly. I I cannot keep silent for I hear the sound of the trumpet and the alarm of war. Crash follows hard upon crash. The whole land is laid waste. And suddenly my tents are laid waste and my curtain, curtains in a moment. How long must I see the standard and hear the sound of the trumpet? For my people are foolish. They know me not. They are stupid children that have no understanding. They are wise in doing evil. But how to do good, they know not. That is what Paul's anguish reflects. If you remember, Jeremiah had been preaching for 50 years. And no one listened to him for 50 years. He only had two people come to his, his services. One was his secretary, so I don't know if he was paid <laughs> to be there. I don't know, Barak. I mean, he's the one who wrote everything down. And then he had one other person who was a, a, a supporter. But that was it. For 50 years. Can you imagine? And then to watch all his prophecies come true. And the temple is being burned. And the city is being ravaged. And he's watching it? You know, read Lamentations sometime. Wow. I have great sorrow. And unceasing anguish. The word anguish is the ESV translation. The New American Standard says unceasing grief. It's the same general word, but it's a Greek word, lupe or lupeo, which denotes a pain that can only be experienced by two people who love each other. There's many words for grief. This particular one is about a, almost a marital relationship Where either one has betrayed the other or there is a death or there is something that tears that apart. And that grief is unceasing and very painful and very powerful. And Paul intentionally uses this word here. He's trying to express to his people how upset he truly is and how the pain that's there is from love not of anger. But then he says, verse 3, I wish I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. Now wait. He's saying what? I would be willing to be cut off from Christ if they would believe. That's... Pretty astounding. Charles Spurgeon talked about this at one point in one of his sermons. He said, there have been times where I have prayed to Christ that I not go to heaven if those to whom I am preaching would. I'm willing to lay my life down for them in eternity All I can do is admire that. I cannot relate. I, I just, wow, that's really intense. Remember, this is in the book of Romans. It's in the word of God. It's in a letter to strangers where he says, they know who he is. He, they've read, they've listened to what he's written for eight chapters. And then he says, I'd be willing to put all that aside. Moses offered to be blotted from the book of life in exchange for his people's forgiveness in Exodus chapter 32 verse 32 we forget that it's one of those moments in biblical history that gets kind of buried and of course God said no 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 you don't need to do that I've got this I've got a way to redeem the people didn't happen for a long time, but he had a way. and He knew that. See, Paul knows that Christ died for all, but his heartfelt desire is expressed so poignantly that the believers, that the hearers, could grasp the depths of his desire. And then he describes them. He says they are Israelites. Now, this is another one of those interesting changes in Romans. In chapters 1 through 8 they are referred to as Jews. In chapters 9 through 11, they're referred to as Israelites. Isn't that interesting? Yeah, they're the same thing. It's a, you know, six of one, half a dozen of the other, maybe, but he's trying to emphasize their covenantal connection and their relationship to God so you're talking to a group of Jews in this case, and he says, you Israelites, that changes the conversation. For example, they're not living in Israel. They're living in Rome. They are set apart from the people in Israel. They are in a different city. So he's, they know he's not talking to them by their country of passport. I know there was no passports then, but you know, I'm trying to make a point. Otherwise, he would say, you Italians! <laughs> and they would have gone, what? And it would have made sense. He's appealing to their origins. And then he lists the privileges that they have. Was it seven of them? One, two, three, four, six. Six of them. He Talks about their adoption. In verses 8 and chapter 8, 15, and 8, 23, Paul writes of the adoption of believers into the family of God. Here he's not talking of that kind of adoption. He's talking about the declaration that the Israelites are the children of God all the way back in Exodus. Exodus 4:22. God claims the people as sons and later in Hosea 11.1 1, the quote is when Israel was a youth I loved him and out of Egypt I called my son God has declared the Israelites his children they have been adopted into the family of God specifically then we have they have the glory this is the divine presence of God among the people and this is often exhibited in the Old Testament by the glory around the Ark of the Covenant, the Shekinah glory that is uh, shown. Then there's the covenants. Notice the plural. It's not covenant singular. It's covenants plural, likely referring to Noah, Abraham, Sinai, and David. David. So if you don't go to Tom's class on Wednesday and you go to John Mead's class on Wednesday who talks about the covenants, he will be going through all of these. Sorry for the commercial for the other guy, but. (laughs) If you don't have an understanding of that, you need to at some point because right here, that word covenants has so much meaning. We could spend an hour just talking about what that's talking about. And the, his audience, Paul's audience, knows what that means in that one word, especially when it's plural. Then the giving of the law, that's obvious, the Mosaic law. Then the worship. Now, the challenge in the, the Greek is that it's not the word worship. Um, it's it's a, I'm, I don't even have the actual wording. It's a reference to the act of an expression and so the ESV translators are using the word worship meaning the tabernacle, the offerings, the priesthood, and the temple. And then lastly the promises. Well that goes back to Jeremiah's promise of a new covenant and the promise of a Messiah. These all illustrate God's perpetual faithfulness to Israel for thousands of years despite their stubborn rebellion. But wait, there's more. There's verse 5. It says, and to them belong the patriarchs, meaning Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, from their ethnic heritage. He's not speaking to Gentiles in this passage. He's speaking to the Israelites, the Jewish people. Their ethnic heritage as children of God according to the flesh and then he brings it home is the Christ, is the Messiah who is God over all blessed forever now there's a Christological statement there of who is Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ is God over all oh wow now, unfortunately, there's a little bit of a controversy in this, that particular verse because of the punctuation. In the Greek, there's no punctuation. There's no periods, there's no commons, there's not even paragraph breaks. And if you've ever seen an ancient Greek manuscript, especially, I don't remember the uh, um, actual term where it's all capital letters. Unicals, um. mm-hmm. the un- unicals where it's all caps. So imagine a badly written email that's all caps because you forgot to turn off the all caps button. And then you don't have any spaces between the words. And you have no punctuation. That's a Greek manuscript. Okay, so you come to a phrase like according to the flesh is the Christ who is God over all in the ESV you have a comma in the RSV you have a period separating the two and in actually the, the RSV it reads uh, according to the flesh is the Christ period God who is over all be blessed forever changes the meaning which one's right well we don't know because there's no punctuation in the Greek obviously if you want to have this as a Christological statement which would fit what Paul would be saying it's not out of character for him to make a declaration like that he's already made that declaration in chapter 1 through 8 but here He is trying to emphasize the connection of Christ and God together as one. But we have those who like to play with these things and use punctuation to mess with it. So if you ever run into that, you have an answer. Think they're wrong. They're bad, bad people. Anyway, um, the other thing that's very critical here is that the Messiah, the Christ, is from Israel he's declaring his origin. All right. So we've rolled through chapter chapter 9 verses 1 through 5. And you have to ask the question so what? I mean, you read that we could we could just end and say our prayer and go on our way and There's a couple questions which can come to mind. I found them in a different in different variations in a, a few different books and uh, sermons that I looked at. But I go back, have, you have to go back to verse 2 and verse 3 and look at Paul's anguish and sorrow. <clears throat> it's almost visceral. I mean, this is, this is not no casual cast off statement. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart and I wish I could be cursed if they would believe. And the questions that I came across were like, do you ever anguish over others like Paul? Willing to die for others? Do you ever anguish over those who are closest to you? Probably, that's a little easier. But, do you anguish over your enemies? And the people he is writing to, the Jews who are fighting him, are not his friends. I don't know if it would be fair to classify them as enemies. But he had to start this entire expression with, I'm telling the truth, I'm not lying. Knowing full well, as soon as he started talking, they would start trying to shout him down if they were in person. And he's willing to take the curse of sin on himself for their benefit. And I had to step back, and I went, "Whoa, well, oh my. I don't know how many times, you know, you, you read somebody, especially in today's rancorous um, theater that we seem to watch all the time in media and whatnot, people say stuff, you go, I wish they would just go on an island, you know, where they test nuclear bombs <laughs> and... Then we don't have to listen to them anymore. Goodness sake. Just stop it. And you get angry. And you, the, you know. The many people. There, In fact I have a friend of mine. Who got really engaged on Facebook. In these kinds of debates. And he never won a single argument. And he couldn't figure out why. And I said. My friend is a friend up in Michigan and he said, well I realized that um, they already had their minds made up and nothing I could say is ever going to change it. And I realized I was actually killing myself physically because I was raising my blood pressure. I was getting all stirred up in issues that I really don't have any place or authority to speak and what was I trying to do, trying to change the minds of strangers who all they want to do is argue. And I had to step away. And I said, and so did you begin praying for them? (laughs) Thanks. Thanks for the guilt. (laughs) And I just said, I'm not trying to be over spiritual here, but that's the principle. And I thought back on that when I read this. That Paul is praying for them, but he's also declaring to them, I'm willing to die for you. Please listen to what I'm saying. That's pretty extraordinary. And I think that's an application that we can live with. And uh, contemplate this week. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the power of your passage and your words. Always taking a surprising twist in a different direction that we may or may not have thought. I can tell you I did not think I'd be thinking about enemies when I first began studying Romans chapter 9 but to look at what Paul is writing and to whom he is writing and what he's writing and his so his sincere desire for the belief and the faith and the salvation of everyone that he knows and even strangers who he doesn't should give us pause when we think about those that we come in contact with. Lord, thank you for the opportunity again to study your word. In Jesus' name, amen.